Hey, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH. This week, I'm summarizing the April 2nd, 2021 weekly report. Let's get started. Article 1, Use of Clinical Preventive Services in 2018. All right, so for starters, Clinical preventive services are things like routine disease screenings and scheduled immunizations. So like the keyword is preventive and the Affordable Care Act does require that many healthcare plans cover certain recommended clinical preventive services without cost sharing, which in simple terms means that many screenings and immunizations legally should be free for many people. I know it is kind of vague. Anyway, Song and colleagues looked at who was using clinical preventive services from 2018 data on the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, aka BRFIS. The services that the researchers looked at specifically included colon, cervical, and breast cancer screenings, HIV testing, pneumococcal and influenza vaccinations, HIV testing, HPV vaccination, and of course there were there were more. The sample size for this study was 437,000 adults, so good sample size. And the researchers found that the use of clinical preventive services was lower among people who were uninsured, who were lower income, and who were living in rural communities. And this was true for all of the preventive services except for HIV testing, which was higher in people with lower income. Public health implication? Understanding that insurance status, income, and geographical location impact people's usage of clinical preventive services can help public health professionals and policymakers shape efforts and policies to increase access to these services among priority groups. Article 2. COVID in a Correctional Facility So we already understand that COVID transmission is common in congregate settings, places like nursing facilities, yes, but also places like correctional facilities. And so this study looked at an outbreak of COVID-19 in a Utah correctional facility, which began in mid-September of 2020. The outbreak likely started when a dental healthcare provider, who later tested positive for COVID, treated inmates while they were asymptomatic. From there, an inmate who received dental treatment let's call this inmate Logan, got COVID symptoms after getting dental treatment. And then Logan's roommate, let's call them Chris, tested positive for COVID. And so began the spread of COVID throughout the entire correctional facility. The outbreak began with 46 cases at the end of September and ended with 1,456 cases by the end of January. And inmates made up 94% of the COVID cases in this outbreak. It's worth noting that staff members at the correctional facility weren't required to wear PPE like N95 respirator masks or eye protection until after this outbreak had already begun. Also, once the index patient, Logan, started showing COVID-19 symptoms, no exposed inmates were immediately quarantined or isolated. And inmates were not tested regularly. They were tested in large groups at once, which made their COVID status really hard to track in the day-to-day. So this study highlights how vulnerable incarcerated people are to COVID and COVID transmission, and how much improvement needs to be made to protect this population. The takeaway is that correctional facilities have an essential role in preventing COVID transmission to inmates. They should be screening non-facility healthcare providers with rapid antigen tests upon entry, testing inmates five to seven days after getting treatment from non-facility healthcare providers, 
but also just testing inmates more often and quickly isolating and quarantining those who are symptomatic, exposed to COVID, or COVID positive. So on this same topic of COVID in correctional facilities, this next article looked at incarcerated and detained people and how willing they were to get vaccinated. Stern and colleagues surveyed 5,000 prison residents across 16 facilities in four states and asked about whether they'd get the vaccine and why. And 45% of the incarcerated people said that they would get a vaccination, 10% said that they would hesitate to receive it, and 45% said that they would refuse to receive the vaccination. Willingness to receive the vaccine was lowest in Black people, participants aged 18 through 29, and people living in jails instead of prisons. The common reasons for a vaccine refusal were distrust of healthcare, correctional or governmental personnel, or institutions. And for Black participants, this distrust is founded in historical mistreatment of Black people in medicine and in law enforcement. The public health implication for this study is that, while 45% is a good start to vaccine willingness, there is a lot of work to be done to reach that other 45% of incarcerated people who would refuse a vaccine, especially Black people, people ages 18 through 29, people living in jails. Those are the groups that public health efforts for vaccinations need to be focusing on, especially with regard to increasing their trust in the vaccine. Article 4, um, funny enough, is actually also about COVID transmission in a prison. So this prison received a group of incarcerated people from a different facility and then put them into housing before testing them for COVID. Then when they did test them for COVID, they identified COVID in some of the people. They then put those COVID positive people in isolation and the COVID negative people in quarantine. But then the people in quarantine were re-exposed to COVID, but their quarantine period was not restarted. And even when COVID was obviously spreading and the facility implemented a lockdown of the prisoners, they still had staff members working in multiple housing units, so there were still contamination and transmission opportunities at all points during this COVID outbreak. In total, 79% of the prisoners tested positive for COVID compared to 22% of the prison staff. And just like in Article 2, this facility tested everyone in mass. There was no daily or weekly testing, which could have drastically improved the prison's ability to catch COVID-positive cases and implement isolation and quarantine quickly. So to me, the public health implication is clear. Congregate settings like prisons are hotspots for COVID spread, and prisoners are really vulnerable to COVID transmission. That's why it's critical for jails and prisons to adhere to quarantine and isolation protocols. And regular testing is absolutely critical to stop the spread of COVID. Article 5 filled a gap in the literature about COVID incidents and racial and ethnic minorities. So this one's really interesting, because while we know that the systemic inequalities in the U.S. have placed a heavier COVID burden on communities of color, there is a gap in reporting. And what I mean by this is that counties that have missing information on race and ethnicity are often excluded from disparities research. So in other words, the counties that aren't measuring racial and ethnic minorities aren't reporting data on them. And that's a gap. That's a really important gap. So to fill this gap, the researchers looked at 
population data from the U.S. and identified the U.S. counties that had both high COVID incidence and had high percentages of Blacks, Latinos, Asians, Alaska Native American Indians, and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders. And so by looking at these counties specifically with the high COVID incidence and the high minority population, rather than assessing minority data from the reported COVID case data, researchers were able to essentially look at how COVID is affecting communities of color from a different angle, so to speak. So other studies on COVID disparities, they look at case data, which again has a gap in the reporting, and this one instead took a population data approach. So the findings themselves of this study are just descriptive statistics, with the bottom line being that by December of 2020, nearly all of the observed counties had high COVID incidence. But the implication of this study is actually more interesting to me, because by taking a population-based approach to observing and analyzing disparities, and by looking specifically at counties, this type of study can be easily used by state health departments to further evaluate population-based disparities, not just in COVID incidents, but also for assessing things like vaccination equity. Article 6, Anxiety, Depression, and Mental Health Care in Young Adults During the Pandemic Months of August 2020 through February of 2021. So the background here is that outbreaks of transmissible diseases are often associated with fear and grief, which, I mean, those affect mental health, right? And with the pandemic's effect of basically shutting society down at certain points, there is reason to believe mental health might be affected by the pandemic. So researchers looked at survey data from over 359,000 adults across the United States and they found a 5.5% increase in people with recent symptoms of an anxiety or depressive disorder. They also found a 2.5% increase in people reporting an unmet need for mental health care. And these percentages were significantly higher than the numbers we've been seeing pre-pandemic. The increases were largest in people with less than a high school education and in people ages 18 through 29. The implication here is that this isn't the first study that suggests increased mental health problems during the pandemic. Public health professionals should continue to monitor and respond to these mental health trends by tailoring and supporting mental health programs, especially for disproportionately affected groups. And really, I want to highlight access to mental health care, so telehealth services and other programs that are more focused on access. The final study included in this week's report looked at the effectiveness of mRNA vaccines, aka Pfizer and Moderna, in a cohort of almost 4,000 healthcare workers, first responders, and frontline workers. These workers were either fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, or unvaccinated, and they were tested every week for 13 weeks to determine their COVID-19 status. You can think of partial vaccination as like a halfway point between the first dose and the second dose. Anyways, the researchers were comparing the effectiveness of the vaccines in real-world conditions with the effectiveness of the vaccines as reported in clinical trials. The researchers found that after 14 days of receiving the second dose of either vaccine, the vaccines were 90% effective against COVID infection. And for partially immunized people, the vaccine was still 80% effective against COVID infection. So the implication is that some people have been hesitant about COVID vaccines and how effective they really will be, and this study demonstrated that they really are effective. 
even in people with some of the highest exposures to COVID. So this data can now help inform health communication efforts to promote trust in the vaccine amongst the broader population. And that's it for this week's recap. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in any of the information I shared today, be sure to follow the podcast Instagram at MMW Recap. Have a great week.